Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Uh, I am very excited to talk to this author, S.B. Divya, about her debut novel, Machinehood, which is one of my favorite books that I've read so far this year and is probably going to be high on my best of at the end of the year. We're going to talk a lot about Machinehood as we go along. So I can tell you that you probably will get more out of this if you just trust me pause this podcast, go buy the book, come back and listen to us to expand on these ideas. But if you need us to convince you further, here we go. Divya, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Let's talk about how you got into science fiction and what's your science fiction origin story. Because you could be doing lots of things with your life, but you've chosen to write science fiction. How did you get into science fiction as a reader? And what was the the tipping point that made you want to do this as well? I got into it as a reader, as a child, um, at some prodding from my dad, actually. I was about nine or 10 and just reading random whatever I picked up off the library shelves. And he wanted me to up my reading game. He was not a science fiction fan himself, neither was my mom, but he had a coworker who suggested that I might like it for whatever reason. And so to stop him from bugging me about it, I asked my school librarian, I was, I think, fourth or fifth grade at the time, for a science fiction book. Mm -hmm. And uh, she handed me a book that has changed my life. And it was not a famous one. It was called The Green Book by Jill Patton Walsh. Very slim little thing. But it's one of those stories that has a twist at the end that just kind of blew my mind. And it wasn't any of your standard, you know, alien Martian type of tropes. And so I was won over and have basically never looked back. As far as the writing goes, um, I did my first bit in a class assignment in eighth grade. And it was uh, a story with a bit of a cliffhanger ending. I thought it was a lady and tiger ending as many beginning writers do. And my friend was like, no, I need you to finish writing this. And so I took it home and I started just, uh, just winging it, you know, chapter after chapter. And I had one willing audience um, and that was enough to keep me going. But then uh, I went off to uh, become an actual scientist and college um, was Caltech, which was kicking my ass. So sophomore year, I took one creative writing class and that was the last completed story I did for about 15 years. I just worked as an engineer, put off any thoughts of being a science fiction author to you know, winning the lottery or retiring, whichever came first. Mm-hmm. And then, um, about eight years ago, uh, decided that I didn't want to wait until I was retired or winning the lottery, that maybe I should start now and make time for it. And so at that point, I got serious and said, okay, I'm actually going to submit and try to publish. And I started in short fiction because I had a kid and a full-time job. And I've kind of worked my way up to now having a full-length novel out this year. 
Right. And we'll talk about that science background because I do think that that's important, especially when we're talking about machinehood. After Green Book, right? And and you had to have had other authors that you that you delved into or ones that that sung for you that continued to blossom this passion. What, what are some of the names of the authors who really influenced you during these early reading years? My biggest influences were Frank Herbert and C.J. Cherry. Mm. I also loved um, Joan Binge's books. Um, her novel, Scion, was like the first book that ever made me cry. I think it was 12. <laughs> um, That's awesome. Like actual literal tears. I was like, I didn't know this was possible. And uh, and I also liked I liked Asimov, um, especially at that age, for his um, ideas, which I continue to think are very good. Though prose-wise, as an adult, I prefer Bradbury if I'm going for you know classical age uh, science fiction. Yeah, and then I mean Frank Herbert and C.J. Terry, like I have devoured their entire over as uh, wrote papers on dune for high school english class like any any excuse i could get to dig deeper into um into either of those authors and Saitine mm -hmm. was uh was like my best friend through much of high school i would just anytime i was grumpy i would just sit down and and read that book and and just love spending time with the main characters there absolutely yeah and and those foundational authors are and also part of the whole journey is some of these authors like Asimov, where you were really excited about them when you're young, but when you read them as an adult, you get a chance to, that can be one of the major teaching things for, for an author is to see like, hey, I love this, but you know, where can I grow as an artist and, and, and learn some things? I think, I think revisiting some of those books are actually important to, to see like what they're, what they're missing, you right. know, which you see as an adult. Yeah. Well, no, that's really cool. Um, and so when you, so the science thing, that's that you took serious being a scientist. You said you went to Caltech. What did, what were you studying? Because I think that does play a role in, in the novel that we, that we got. Right. Right. Um, well, when I started at Caltech, I actually was on track to be uh, physics and astronomy. And then um, halfway through, I diverted to computational neuroscience, which is the part that plays a very deep role in everything in machinehood. So it was a, a really nice sort of integrated program where I could bring in physics, biology, and um, computer engineering. And so I really, I've never been good at single-mindedness. I like breath. I, I'm interested in everything. I'm more of either a dilettante or a renaissance person, depending on how complimentary you're feeling. But I like breadth of knowledge. And so having a multidisciplinary major really, um, really worked well for me. And so I still love astronomy and astrophysics and the concepts of it. Um, but I just as much love, you know, the brain and electrical engineering and all the things we're building. And so I, I try to put those things together as much as I can, even in my work. Well, the fun thing about astronomy is speaking as somebody who's a big astronomy nerd and like, uh, you know, all you really need to, to do that on, on your own is, I mean, you can do that 
on your own as a hobby. Lots of people do. Lots of mm -hmm. great discoveries are made by citizen scientists and astronomy still to this day. So it's, it's yes, absolutely. The night sky is always there for for us, you know. Uh, so that's one of those exciting things. So just as an astronomy nerd, I just for a second, I want to unpack. How did, how did you get interested in that? Was that through science fiction? Was science fiction what started that? Or was it just looking at the night sky on its own? Um, I think there was some inspiration from science fiction. And there was some inspiration from a research project I did in school, um, the life cycle of stars. And I was just absolutely fascinated with everything I learned, you know, from from the birth of stars all the way to neutron stars and black holes. And I suspect that some of the reason I chose that particular science project was inspired by science fiction and space travel. Mm. Um, but once I got into, you know, just the the physics of star formation and uh, evolution, it stopped being about the fictional aspects. And I was just really, really fascinated by the science of it all. But well, the same I... thing happened once I got into neuroscience. I was like, oh, my God, brain is is as much of an unknown as the distant reaches of you know our galaxy or our universe. And so that also really, really fascinated me, just um, recognizing this was the 90s. And so it's like, we knew certain physiological aspects, but there was a lot we just didn't understand as far as how brains work. There's still, I think, a lot that we don't understand as far as how brains work. Um, and so I feel like in terms of scope of discovery as a scientist, there's a lot to be had um, in, in that field just as much as in astrophysics. I've had a couple of astronomers on this podcast uh, and, and uh, one Caltech one too, as a matter of fact, uh, Constantine Batigan. But, and when I talked to Constantine about it, I, I kind of picked his brain about the idea that he learned multiple languages when he was young because he grew up, his family was Russian, he grew up in Japan, and then he had this opportunity. Then he didn't even care about astronomy or science until he got older, right? And I, I asked him if he thought that the ability of learning all those different languages, if that made him more pliable towards the sciences. And I'm wondering if for you, if you think that reading science fiction uh, as, as a youngster had anything to do with your ability to grasp these intense because star formation or how the brain works and, and mapping the interior as it were, these are big ish, these are big cosmic things. And I think reading science fiction as a young person can help someone kind of tackle these ideas. Yeah, possibly. Um, I think I was reading either science fiction or occasionally um, classics of English literature. And I also came from a household that was very idea forward. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's a, both my parents really enjoy, um, delving into Hindu philosophy and other types of philosophy, but we always got into discussions of big ideas. Um, my dad was an atheist. My mom started out religious and kind of has ended up agnostic. So we had a lot of conversations about that, which is a big weighty topic. And so, uh, I guess I, I wasn't raised to shy away from big ideas and I definitely appreciated the big ideas that science fiction uh, brings to the table as far as the imagination. 
Um, one of the things I love about getting older, and actually even after I got to Caltech, was being able to geek out with other people and kind of delve into those big science fictional ideas. Because growing up, um, I didn't know anybody who read the books I read. Mm -hmm. And so it, it wasn't till um, I found my my fellow science nerds and then the internet that I really discovered uh, how widespread, you know, fandom was for a lot of these things. But I was completely on my own. I just read it because I loved it. And I had, you know, no one really to, to share that with until I was much older. But no, I, I mean, I think to your point, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I think it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. Like, was I drawn to science fiction because I like the big ideas or, um, right. you know, did the science fiction draw me to the big ideas? Uh, I'm not sure which came first. It, it's cool because it, a lot of times with parents like who are encouraging of these things, you know, we get a we get a big difference in you know, the parents who, who just didn't, didn't care at all. Right. Like my dad had this rule that he would buy me any book as long as I could convince him that I read it. And so when discussing with my political scientist father, Dune or foundation, like he never liked science fiction, but he understood why I got it because he liked talking about it through those ways. When you brought, when you came home after reading these books, were, were you able to bond with your father on, 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 Hey, Dad, you sent me this way, and look at what I found, right? A little bit. I honestly, I don't recall spending a lot of time talking to my parents about science fiction. I should ask them if I really did um, when I was a kid. It was more, I think, with with movies. We all would sit down and watch, you know. So we watched Dune, the movie, the David Lynch movie, mm -hmm. and that's what got me to go and read the book and then all the other books. And then I also went off and watched all of David Lynch's stuff. So I'm one of those rare people who actually likes the, the 1984 Dune because <laughs> okay. I have it to, again, I have to thank it for getting me, you know, into one of my, um, one of my formative years favorites. And so, um, so we would talk, I guess, about science fictional movies, whether it was Star Wars, Dune, not so much about um, the books, though we did a little bit, I think, with things like Foundation. But no, I don't, I wouldn't say that, um, I wouldn't say that my, my parents were super excited about my being into science fiction. Like they were glad I was reading, you know, bigger and better books at a higher level, actual full length novels, and that I enjoyed it. But to them, it was, it was a fun thing and science or engineering or medicine or law, you know, like one of these yeah. other things would have to be your serious pursuit in life. Um, but to be fair, like today at this point, you know, in the second half of my life, they are very thrilled uh, at my writing career and, and totally supportive. I'm not sure that would have been the case if I had gone into college saying I want to be a novelist. <laughs> if you had started wanting to do that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. See, it was interesting. My my father being an academic too, um, he, as a political scientist, he just, those two books were the ones that I was able to talk to him about where he was very encouraging of just the fact that I bought Stephen King's It when it came out. And he was like, you're going to read that whole thing, that whole doorstop. Okay, well, you got to, you know, I might not care what it's about, but I'm just glad you're reading it. And so he was just excited. And um 
Yeah, he's always been supportive of just because I have learning disabilities and severely dyslexic. And the fact that I was so into reading and writing because of it, like he was he was pretty stoked on that. So but okay, yeah, so awesome. now yeah, so started to take this seriously. So you you have a career as a scientist, you're doing this thing, you decide I'm gonna start with writing short stories. Did you did the first story was the first story like pulling a tooth or the first serious story, or did it flow out of you super easy? <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> uh it rarely flows out super easy. The the first story I wrote that I completed. So I never really completely stopped writing in between. I just dabbled and never really finished anything. So I like had fits and starts where I might have, you know, a long weekend and be like, I'm gonna sit down and write a short story and I would get three pages in and lose my way. But I uh, pretty consistently starting in like 2003 or four, I was writing on LiveJournal, not publicly, but um, to my friends, I was I was blogging pretty regularly on there and journaling. So even though I wasn't writing fiction, I was continuing to write prose, and I feel like that kind of kept the wheels greased, so to speak, uh, so that my writing skills were not rusty when I decided to get back into fiction. But my my actual fiction writing ability had never been trained, and that's what I kind of realized in looking at this detritus of the past 15 years was I would dive in, you know, as we say in the industry, I was a pantser. I was like flying by the seat of my pants. Oh, I have this great idea. I'm just going to sit down and start writing. And four or five pages in, I'd have no idea what's supposed to happen next. And I'd kind of get frustrated and lose steam and, and set it aside. So when it came time to, um, to take it seriously, I decided I need to take a class like I need to educate myself, figure out how to write the not just the beginning, but also the middle and the end of the story and to finish it, revise it and be able to submit it for publication. And so I signed up for an online class um, between my engineering work and my at the time toddler. There was no like getting out of the house even for you know evening extension classes or anything i needed something super asynchronous and so uh, gotham university had these classes where it was all online nothing was live there was no live instruction the instructor posts their notes and the assignment you turn in your work you critique each other's stuff all on your own time whenever you get to it and then you know there's weekly deadlines so that was that ended up being really perfect it um it forced me to finish two stories, which was an accomplishment in itself. Neither of them was great. Neither of them has ever since been published and will probably never see the light of day. But um, but important for you. But yeah, sure. but it was it was a good milestone for me. And I learned a lot from that class, including, you know, the practicalities of how to submit in the modern world because back in my high school days the last time i had even considered sending something to a magazine it was like you go to the library and you check out writers market and it's like that's not that's not how things work today so <laughs> so i really needed all that and then um after that it was just a matter of practice you know and no it's pretty rare that things just like Nothing, nothing flows like honey from my fingertips. There are stories that I can write faster than other stories, but 
everything goes back through revisions and the more experience I've had as a writer, the more I tend to plan out the story in advance. And that actually makes things go faster for me. Well, I'm a religious outliner and I, I like to think that I can uh, sense, well, I can sense sometimes when I'm reading a pantser and, and they haven't like planned it out and things are meandering. So and I'm not, there've been times where I've been wrong where I thought, oh, this person is definitely an outliner and they weren't. However, uh, I think you, this novel is very well structured, so I, I, ca I can see the planning uh, there uh, and thought I was in good hands for most of that. So, <laughs> so you can feel good about that. But um, now, was there a breakthrough story or a story that, because you have a short story collection, correct? Um, yes. Um, which is on my list of things to read. I've just read Machine Hood, but uh, is there a short story that you feel was your breakthrough or the one that you're most proud of before we get into Machinehood? The one that was the breakthrough is my novella Runtime, um, which mm -hmm. is included now in the short story collection, which is called Contingency Plans for the Apocalypse and Other Possible Situations. That's a long title. I like the title. On... It's a great title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that short story title was for a story that came out in Uncanny Magazine a few years ago. But Runtime. I think was what kind of, uh, I would say was my breakthrough in terms of getting a lot of notice from other people, other writers, people in the industry, editors and uh, readers to some extent. Um, Cause prior to that I'd had, I think three like flash fiction pieces, which are, you know, four or five pages long, they're very short. And this novella came out as a standalone book. It's, it's very short, it's like 120 pages. So it's not, you know, it's not, what you would think if you're like i'm gonna buy a book this is a very slim volume but uh it was nominated for a nebula and that you know gets you noticed so that would be that would i would be what i would say is my breakthrough i don't know what i'm Pretty most good. proud of <laughs> i mean i if i'm like if i have to say what am i most proud of it's usually like the last thing that i completed and sent out quite often and so um I feel like I'm still learning and improving, and I hope that I continue to learn and improve for my entire career as a writer. So ideally, each thing is better than the last one, right? Because right. you're always you're always making that kind of progress. Now, readers are never going to agree with that because they're going to have their favorites. But yeah. for me personally, yeah, it's, you know, it's whatever I'm working on now is like the shiny fun thing. And whatever was last published was probably the best thing I've written. <laughs> Well, I had this strange situation of the last book that I published, I wrote in 2010 and I've written like six or seven novels since then. And, and that, for that reason, it like, it hurts because I'm like, I know I, I got way better, so including the sequel to that book. Sometimes you just have to let go and, and you know, and be like, I'm, you got to be okay with the growth process that's out there and eventually things will things will be be found in the right order, you know? And I've had yeah. books that came out before that that I wrote after it and, you know, so on and so forth. But it, it's um, it's just strange how, how that happens sometimes. Um, you'll see when, you, when you're writing for longer <laughs> and, you, <laughs> and, you, and you have those. But um, Machine Hood is a debut novel. And I did not know that when I read it because there's two ways that I read a new a, a book that I should 
let you know about, which is one is that a lot of times I put a book on hold at the library or buy a book and I wait a couple months to read it. So I forget what it was about so I can go in cold. And I didn't read the dust jacket for Machine Hood. I didn't read your bio, anything. I just, at some point I knew I was really interested in this book and I put it on hold at the library and it came in. <laughs> And then I was like, looked at the cover. That's all I knew, the title. And I started reading. And um, I like this method because it's I'm able to go into a book cold. I'm not like trying to guess where the elements that I read about on the dust jacket are, are coming in. And then I feel like I'm closer to having the experience that the author wants me to have reading it is, is discovering the whole story. Now, as we start talking about machine hood, you have a history with robotics and AI. And I think that that's important before we get into what the story is actually about. Like why you are in a position to write this book that nobody else is. And that is one of my favorite things when you find an author who has a unique perspective that can bring, that can write, nobody else could write this book, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Only Divya could write this book. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about your background, because I think that's really interesting to the story of this book. Sure. Um, so I took that computational neuroscience degree and, uh, and went off to start working and earning money as an engineer. And I, um, my first job was in medical devices. And so I've always been fascinated, um, you know, as we said earlier, about the brain, about neuroscience. But then, you know, once I became a working engineer, I got a lot more interested in biotechnology in general and also cybernetics and kind of the meeting point between human beings and machines. And I continued to inhabit, you know, the tech world, right? I was working in chip design, various things, but in that space over the past five to 10 years, we've started having a lot of conversations about um, what today we're calling artificial intelligence. Uh, a lot of people are gonna argue with what exactly that means and whether we should even apply those words to the software and algorithms that we have today. But regardless, it was becoming pretty clear that machine learning and intelligent software was starting to be able to do a lot of the work that human beings were being were able to do that robotics and factory robots were becoming a lot more sophisticated and also again being able to do what human beings were able to do and so looking forward into this century um, there was a lot of existential angst about the labor force about the future of education the future of work I think those conversations are are still ongoing. Um, you know, what do we need to retool our populace to be productive, competitive in the coming decades? And so this book kind of was my exploration of those questions and me attempting to outline one possible future in which I bring in artificial intelligence, I bring in robotics, I bring in biotechnology, I bring in material science, because there's a lot of advances happening there. I had a lot of fun researching sort of the 
leading edge of what's happening with science and technology today in many of these spheres, and then thinking about how they're going to affect our daily lives. And so, I guess what makes I guess what makes my perspective unique with this particular book is that breadth of knowledge and wanting to kind of put all these different pieces together into a cohesive whole and to really build what I hope is a believable world. You know, I'm not going to say I'm predicting the future because no one can do that, mm -hmm. but I want people who read it to feel like this is a future that they could see happening. This is a future that our descendants might actually inhabit. And then from there, you know, you can start jumping off to, well, is this a future we want to inhabit or do we want things to go mm. in different directions from the ones that I have envisioned? Well, and it's funny too, because speaking to somebody who does a Philip K. Dick podcast, Philip K. Dick didn't give a shit about predicting the future. And he used to actually get in fights with his editors because he would set it like 20 years in the future. And they'd say, this is impossible, Phil. And he'd say, I don't care. You know, like, because he didn't care about getting the future right at all. Right. right. And um, for him, it was just like a surreal landscape to tell his ideas. And what I think is cool about machinehood is that I do think it's a very believable future. And if you, within my review of it, I, I think I hit at, and some of the things that we're going to be talking about in the rest of this conversation are things that I think are very believable parts about what this future will look like. Um, and, and so that I do think mission accomplished it's a um for me it's a future that i thought was very 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 believable now on to the writing of this one of the things that is okay so the, the the novel is written with two basic point of view narrators who kind of run throughout it but the machinehood manifesto which is um so there's this this group in the the novel in this future there is kind of a uh, um, an AI rebellion of a sort, and there's this manifesto that this group Machinehood has. Did you write that out ahead of time, or is that something you developed during the process of writing the book? Because that's wrote, as a writer, I'm very curious about that. Yeah, no, I wrote that out ahead of time. I have this distinct memory of sitting outside of a library reading the communist manifesto and the unabomber manifesto <laughs> and the um and donna haraway's um cyborg manifesto and just thinking uh i need to you know i needed i wanted to research the language of the manifesto because i knew that i wanted excerpts of a manifesto in my novel and once i got to thinking about it i was like well i don't want to just write the excerpts i'm going to write you know, an entire 2,500 word manifesto, because it'll be a fun exercise as an author. And it let me kind of inhabit the minds of my antagonists a bit too, right? What is their perspective? Why are they, um, you know, what is their social cause? Why are they writing this? Because when I did go back and read those actual manifestos, that's what I came to very quickly realize was these were not people who set out to be evil. These were people who were who set out to try to write something that they saw was wrong in the world. Mm -hmm. And however much we may agree or disagree with, you know, either their ideas or even their methodologies, 
fundamentally they thought they were going to do something good. And so I wanted my antagonist to have that too. And I ultimately want the reader to have a similar sort of internal conflict as many of us do with, with historical manifestos and revolutions. So writing this manifesto, did it one change your mind about the underlying issue of the novel and two, did it change the direction of the novel writing it? is what I'm wondering. I've had this question since I read the book, so I'm super <laughs> excited to finally ask it. It did not change the direction of the book. I had already yeah. known um, up front, uh, with, with all of my stories, I know how it starts and how it ends. Um, because without knowing the ending, I lose my way in the middle. Yep. Did it change my mind? I think my mind was already unmade going into this novel. I was not writing it to be polemical. I was genuinely writing it to explore my own feelings about this conflict that, you know, that was under discussion and that we're seeing between uh, human and AI or human and machine labor. And ultimately, I was also writing this book as a response to the standard pop culture narrative that it always has to be either or you know it's it's us versus them and the machines will always be something not human and the humans will always be something not machine and i really wanted to interrogate that because again coming from uh, an integrated background of eastern and western cultures i found this sort of very like hard this or that thinking not cohering with my perception of reality. And so I wanted to write a book where, you know, it's like, well, what if it doesn't have to be this way? What if it's not always a conflict? Uh, are there other answers to that particular question? Are there other ways that society can move into a world in which, you know, human beings and AI labor can coexist? And are there alternatives to the ones that we are typically presented with as answers to these kinds of questions? And I do want to say for anyone listening at this point, I'm I'm going to try to stay away from story point spoilers and talk about this book mostly through the ideas because yes, there's a really cool story there that unfolds, but I think the ideas are one of the things that are going to be really fun to talk about with this book, which makes it kind of old school sci-fi in a way, because um, I like really talking about the ideas. So I don't think anything here is going to hurt you for your experience for reading the book. If you, you are super worried about spoilers, pause, go buy, read, come back. Because right now I'm going to start talking about the characters. Welga, who's one of the, the two main point of view characters, I thought was a really br brilliant narrative invention in this novel because her body itself becomes the theme or the question at heart and as the story goes on right? right because she and her struggles and her issues and her arc are so directly related to her becoming less and less human as the story goes on and i don't again i don't really think that that's a spoiler like how far or to what level that goes people would have to read to find out. I was just really impressed with that. How early on 
And then the counterbalance of her sister-in-law being, you know, kind of our every person's view of, of the world was, again, really great. To me, all stories are parallels and reversals. And a lot of what was going on in, in, in with Welga, Welga, you get a reversal for how her life goes on. And then there's the parallel with her sister-in-law. That's a lot of me talking about, did you, the theme being tied to Welga's body itself, that was the plan from the beginning, right? I mean, yeah. that was, yeah, okay. And <laughs> um, can you tell me about writing Welga as a character, how you got to know her as the story went on? Um, did you discover parts of her you didn't expect? Because she's a great character and so tied to the theme, just really great stuff. Yeah, so so full disclosure, um, Welga in the first draft of the book is not quite the same as the Welga in the last draft of the book. Things things changed along the way for sure. Uh, she she was always gonna be kind of a badass, take no prisoners, warrior type because that is a type of person I am not, and I, you know like to in my in my fictional world wish that i could live in that you know in that person's head and body for a while so it's a fun sort of character to write i had to do a lot of research for walga's character because i don't have any military background i am not an ass kicking type of person and so um so i had to educate myself with a lot of that but the the thematic nature of of walga's issues and what she goes through in this story that I knew up front that I wanted and um, that did not change. Uh, how she responds to some of the specific activities throughout the book and some of like the backstory type stuff with her evolved a little bit as time went on because as I got into the second half of the book I realized that you know I needed her to respond to the events of the story in a certain way, which required her personality to be a certain way that was a little bit different from how she started out. Um, Nithya, her sister-in-law's character, stayed, I would say, a lot more consistent in part because that was the character that I could easily identify and relate to. That's a little, that has a lot more of me in it. And so um, well, she's, her character is more stable from the beginning. Yeah, and she's more relatable for the reader in general, and it gives something for us to tether ourselves to in, in the narrative and, and very smart decision, you know, storytelling wise. So um, and, and, a, and a good character. So, yeah, I, I also wanted to write her character because I feel like that type of character doesn't get shown in science fiction very much. Like we have a lot of Welgas, we have a lot of badass action heroes in science fiction stories, especially when it comes to stories with robots or AIs in them. We don't have a lot of domestic characters who are just living ordinary lives and have families and aren't out there on the front lines, like fighting things, right? And mm -hmm. so that that was the other reason, you know, Nithya let me do two things. It, it, like you said, it let me give readers um, a view into ordinary life and you know something more relatable uh, but also like i said to express i guess in the science fictional setting this type of person and how they might react to these kinds of events because 
I mean, even in terms of what we're living through in reality today with the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. It it touches every single person's life. Like it's it's inescapable. So no matter, you know, whether you're in the hospitals, in the ICU, or at the highest reaches of government, or you're just, you know, like you and me sitting at home doing our thing, um, it's gonna have an impact. And we rarely get to see that impact on the regular person's life and the small ways in which people get to do heroic things in times of crisis. And so, so I wanted, I wanted that particular balance to be struck in this novel with the, the two different points of view. Let's talk about the world building because world building is really great. I love when world building is done with, um, with a scalpel, not a hammer, you know, when it's not like really over the top. Uh, this takes place in the last five years of uh, the 21st century. So you had a very specific time that you were shooting for, but one of the things that's really good is that we get really subtle moments of talking about the time that we missed in between. They're, they're done very, very minimally and very subtly and done very well. Some of the technology that exists in this time, uh, like the swarms and the, the, the bot swarms and the bot assistants and, the, and those things are very important to the story, right? Because, you know, it's a technological future. But right. can you talk about developing that technology? Yeah, I spent more time working on the world building and the technology up front than I did on the plot, much to my detriment. Um, upon later revisions, um, but I, I just I looked into like I said what was what is happening on the leading edge with various topics, industry spaces, and try to align them with what I saw happening socially, and then I went through decade by decade and kind of summarized what I thought would happen in terms of specific details relating to this book and this world to get me from 2017 when I was writing it to 2095. And so I wanted to have that connective tissue because I, again, I, I sometimes get frustrated with a lot of science fictional stories where we have skipped ahead into the future, but we don't really have any sense of how we got there from here. And I always want to know, like, how did we get there? So even if it doesn't make it on the page in great detail, I, as the author in my head, want to know, you know, what were the stepping stones to get us there? Like, how do we realistically get there from, from where we are today? So I, so I spent some time mapping it out. And a lot of it is just um, extrapolation, honestly, from things that are happening in research labs around the world today to my conception of how they might become integrated into the consumer economy of the later decades of the century. The only thing, there's two things actually in the book and it's world building that I am less certain of. One are the space stations. I feel like as science fiction authors and fans and readers, we are always a little too optimistic about the rapidity of space travel and development in space. So that may or may not get as far as it does uh, by the end of this century in reality, but I wanted it. So I put it in because that's my prerogative as an author. <laughs> right. And the other is um, 
the biotech and genetic engineering revolution, which I think could happen. I don't think there's any science or technology stopping that from happening this century. And the way I kind of envisioned it for this book was similar to what semiconductors did for uh, computer and the digital revolution of the past 100 years. The biotech revolution hits, you know, sort of mid-century and really affects the second half of this century. So will that happen? I don't know, but I, I definitely think it could happen and it could then create a whole new economic sector that doesn't even exist today and kind of drive progress. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of the world building here is that how much of the, the economy is based on the gig economy and virtual tip jars. And um, we'll come back to remind me if I don't tell you what I thought was the most horrifying scene of the book. Um, okay. <laughs> if I if I start to if I slip past the most horrifying part of the book, then we'll have to come back to it. But um, but the 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 gig economy and the tip jars, the virtual tip jars were something that the idea that so much of how you get paid on a day to day basis it reminded me of we recently I recently saw a story about how China is creating this system where if you do if you're caught doing good deeds around town <laughs> doing things. That, that you'll get credits, you'll get social credits for, you know, being a good person. And it seemed to me like so much of this economy is if I get caught, if I, if I do a good thing, or if I do something for somebody, it was like kind of like a high tech version of the anarchist principle of mutual aid kind of thing is what I thought of it as. But I don't know if I'm if I'm reading too much into it, but but I, that's kind of the way I saw it when I was reading it. So it's interesting, but I really liked the whole gig economy part of that. So I'm sure you put a lot of thought into that, but. Yes, yeah. um, I, I think that's a, a somewhat fair reading. Like one of the things I wanted to do with this book was show uh, technology in a more even light, not simply as, as all bad or all good. Mm. And in some ways, you know, sort of the having ubiquitous surveillance that is fully transparent in both directions. So it's not being surveilled by a central authority, it's everybody surveilling everybody else all the time, is turning the globe into that nosy village life, right? Where okay. someone can always see what you're doing. So whether, you know, for the good or for the bad, you can be rewarded for the good behavior and discouraged or punished for the bad behavior and therefore would that potentially, as you said, you know, in an anarchic sense, will it then drive society to actually be better? Could it potentially? Because we always look at surveillance as a bad thing. So I wanted to kind of turn that a little bit on its side and say, in what ways could it possibly be a good influence? Yeah, the, there's just no privacy in this future world. In fact, that leads me to the most horrifying part of the book. So the most horrifying part of the book for me was was the sex scene where, and it was just a random throwaway line where the character said something like, basically like, oh, this this time I'm actually having sex in private and it's, it's something different. And then I was like, wait a second, that's horrifying <laughs> to think about that. And then, I th and then I had the thought like, are people having sex with their virtual tip jar open? Is that one of the ways that they're making money? And then I was like, oh, that, that's really frightening. 
and I don't like thinking about that future. So that was the part where you really freaked me out. Um, and that was that was all world building. That was like one line that that I know I pointed that part out in my review, basically saying like this was really horrifying. A lot of people will just read past that paragraph and not think about what was being said there, but it was really a horrifying part. So obviously you thought that out in, in the world building, but you're, you were connecting that to the virtual chip jar. Am I correct? Because that's hundred mm -hmm. percent. Okay. Yeah. That was yeah, horrifying. No, that, yeah. Yeah. That was very, very intentional. Uh, I wanted to horrify people. Um, and, and yeah, a lot of people find that the most discomforting aspect of, this whole book is this complete loss of privacy and the fact that nobody cares, right? Most people are just like, yeah, I'm fine with it, whatever. I might, you know, uh, clean up some of the camera swarms on the threshold into my house, but a few will inevitably get in anyway. And some people just leave it open because more tips. And not just for the sex, you know, it can be anything that you're doing at home. And um, I well, did this intentionally. People uh, post pictures of their food to get likes um, yeah. online, and and it's it's just an extrapolation of that. It is. It, it is an extrapolation of that, and also the fact that uh, throughout history, moral values have changed, and what is acceptable and not acceptable in public has also changed. And and it's not. It's also not monolithic or monocultural across the globe, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there are things that are acceptable in some parts of the world that are completely unacceptable in others. And so I really kind of wanted to challenge the notions of the reader to say, mm -hmm. you know, this is the life you're comfortable with. What mm -hmm. about a future in which everyone's comfortable with this, this thing that we all think would be morally horrifying, but everyone's totally fine with it because it's just that's how they grew up and it's not a big deal. Well, and it's interesting too, because I, as a PKD scholar and I, I chat with other PKD scholars all the time. So when I reviewed this book, I had one of my PKD friends ask me, is there anything in machinehood that's super PKD? And I mentioned that scene and I said, well, PKD would do a whole novel about that. <laughs> right. But that was a part that, that was very PKD to me in a good way. And I, I was like, well, he would have built a whole novel out of that, but it was just one terrifying scene in a, in a much larger thing. Um, right. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean that as a compliment. Um, that was, that was the thing that reminded me most of, of, uh, the guy that I spent all this time studying his work. Another thing that I thought was really huge in this book and was really important is before we get into the, the rights and the, and the ethical debate, of the novel and I do want to get there as you can see I keep kicking that ball down the road a little bit because I want to do that towards the end one of the one of the other horrifying parts is that um when the basically the social networks or when 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 the internet goes down as it were there's a there's a scene that where the um, social media disruption it has the effect almost of like the mushroom clouds in the day after right Right. And there's this part with, um, and I, but I have it here. The roads are full of wrecked bots. People are sick and dying in the streets. No one wants to leave home because they don't have pills or swarms to protect them. And that was really one of the most powerful par parts of the book because I, a lot of people could say, oh, oh, well, if social media was totally gone, how would things go fall apart? But you actually had to, 
envision that, right? right. And um, so I thought that was a really powerful part of the book. So you had to try to think of this is how it would work today if it was suddenly gone and how will it work in this future. But um, how much did you think about social media disruption as, as, as a thing? I wasn't thinking of it strictly in terms of social media. I was also looking at it in terms of um, what if the internet went down, right? If all our, if for whatever reason, our network infrastructure, because we, we are so highly reliant on it today. Um, You think about the fact that uh, many of us no longer know phone numbers for our nearest and dearest family and friends, right? We used to have to memorize those, but now everything's always at our fingertips. So you don't know. Um, Navigation. Yeah. If you're always following your map on your phone or your car, um, and it's not a place that you have lived in for a very long time, you don't know how to navigate your own streets because you haven't bothered to memorize the routes and you know certainly don't have paper maps anymore. And so it, it was kind of all of that. So the, you know, part of it in terms of not having the swarms was definitely more the social media side of things. And again, the, if that has been keeping people's behavior in check, like what happens when nobody's looking anymore? You know, mm-hmm. how, do, how does human behavior change? the the micro pills are something that the society depends on to keep it safe and healthy from various biohacked plagues and viruses and you know there there are multiple pandemics in the history of machinehood um and welga that came true a little sooner than i thought (laughs) yeah welga takes them to keep up with like machine processing Right. Right. And people rely on these pills to change their um, physiology in order to make them faster or think more clearly. And so they depend on them for their work as well. So all of these things are ultimately reliant on data and data infrastructure. So when that data infrastructure goes down, then what? And so some of it was thinking about today and what would happen today if the internet went down. And some of it, I think, had to be unique to the world of machinehood. I mean, when you're writing science fiction and thinking science fictionally, you can't only look at how human beings might react to a situation in the present. You have to think about the society that you've built and how those people will then have to react based on their values and their habits and everything else. Now, to me, that I always, a lot of times when I write a review of a book, I kind of come up with the mission statement part or the the part where I think the book hits on the mission statement and I think that's going to drive this last little part of this conversation but for me the mission statement part of machinehood was when Welga gets reconnected to her assistant her AI assistant basically her version this future version of I guess the most comparable thing would be Alexa or, or, or something like that um and Ask this AI assistant, do you consider yourself enslaved? And um, the assistant responds, I belong to you, Welga, but since I don't have personhood, I can't be a slave. And that's like the crux of the debate right there. Am I right? I mean, I mean, like, yes. the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so that was a huge part of it. Now, Machinehood 
being it puts a lefty reader of machine hood in a uncomfortable place because machine hood is an organization is the antagonist of the story and generally progressive sci-fi leaning readers are going to want to side with the oppressed um and i have to say as somebody who i'm in my i i became vegan the year when bill clinton was two weeks in office i consider myself an animal rights person um uh, enough so that i've done it for 29 years right and mm -hmm. so animal rights is really important to me so i struggled and i and i saw i saw that you were in the manifesto machinehood was thinking about animals in that way and and i appreciated mm -hmm. that i very much appreciated that because i think if it hadn't been there my mind would have called bullshit on it <laughs> right <laughs> just be, but that's just yeah. me because i'm i'm a i'm a vegan and an, a, an animal lib person however at the same time being that i care about these things the the hard and the challenging part about it is i still think of AIs and and I do still think of them as machines. And because I've invested so much of my life fighting for the rights of of living, breathing creatures, the fact that they're living, breathing, sentient to my definition, you know, that makes sense to me. Whereas the machines, this this book challenged my feelings on it and parts where where the the ai devices talking to welga was very challenging so well done <laughs> <laughs> thank you um, I, I accomplished what i set out to then <laughs> yeah you may i'm not saying you changed my mind but you made me think about it a lot that's all i ask <laughs> right so going into this and knowing that that was the mission statement like do you in your heart feel that one day machines will get personhood in this way and is that the point of the book or is just getting us thinking about it the point of the book am the i point, am i asking you to, to, to say it out loud which i don't <laughs> know if you want to no it's okay the point of the book is to get people thinking i am not um like i said i'm not trying to be polemical or prescriptive and saying you must, you know, mm -hmm. think what I think. My personal feeling is that uh, the, the part of the manifesto that I agree with is that intelligence exists on a spectrum. Now, what we define as, as you said, living and breathing, right? Yeah, you know, is, is a distinct thing from uh, a non-living, non-breathing thing. But I think both can be equally intelligent. And so what that the question that it begs for me is once you acknowledge that the non-living, non-breathing thing can be as intelligent as the living, breathing thing, does it then deserve any sort of similar capacity for selfhood and for personhood and rights? And this is another thing that people are talking about legitimately in tech circles as well, because most of us at this point can see it coming in the, probably within the next 50 years that um, artificial intelligence 
will be sophisticated enough that it's going to be able to, it's going to be hard to distinguish it from natural biological intelligence. So, so then what? That's really my big question. I feel like we're always having this moving goalpost, um, you know, ever since the Turing test was envisioned and has already effectively been passed under certain conditions. We have this moving goalpost of when are the robots sentient, right? Mm -hmm. And there is that very loaded word sentient versus intelligence. And I don't think the two are equivalent. Uh, in my mind, they are definitely not equivalent. However, do you need to have sentience in order to have rights? And so these are some of the, these, and these are, you know, these are hefty philosophical questions without easy answers. And I'm not gonna sit here pretending that um, my answers are gonna be the right ones. My gut feeling as an empathetic human being is that we should err on the side of giving any entity more rights rather than fewer mm -hmm. rights because most of historical and social injury comes from not giving them enough rights. So whether it's animals, whether it's other human beings, whether it's the planet, um, we usually, you know, take before we give. And so in this particular context of writing this novel and the sorts of things I want to challenge people with is, should we be giving a little bit more proactively in this case before we're a hundred percent sure that they deserve it maybe we should give the rights anyway <laughs> right what which is part of what another one of the big sci-fi novels of the last year kim stanley robinson's ministry for the future is about giving rights to people who are not yet born as far as like that they have to yeah. live on this planet right yeah so very fair i think that is i think extending rights is always a good thing to think about in a science fictional setting. Um, now, I always root for writers. I'm a writer myself, so I love when I see see a book come together. When I see the magic happening, that line when when the when Porque is the assistant says the whole "I can't be a slave" thing. Um, I actually I was sitting in my chair reading, and I literally like pumped my fist, like yes. Um, because there's something that has bothered me for over 25 plus years since the episode uh, Measure of Man from Star Trek Next Generation came out, which is it always bothered me. I always wanted Data to not give a shit. Uh, that I wanted Picard and everybody else to be fighting for his rights, but Data to be like, whatever, I'm mm -hmm. just a machine. <laughs> I don't give a shit. Uh, you know, this is all on you people. You're the one that care about me. And so that moment, I was just like <laughs> this 25 year frustration. I was like, yes, she gets it. Awesome. Um, that was a cool thing. Now, and I probably should have brought this up earlier in the sense of we uh, it's kind of out of order in, in the story. But I also really loved the um, Islamic Caliphate Nation and the Neo-Buddhists kind of siding with the machines in, mm -hmm. in, in a, a weird way. I thought that was yeah. really smart and careful world building. Um, so I'm sure you thought about this Islamic caliphate of the future and these neo-Buddhists that live in space outside of the context of this story. You were thinking about them in the world building process and during your first draft, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, for sure. 
Yeah. And so, cause I thought that those strange bedfellows are so much, it, these are things that happen in the world. Like groups get together and work together that you would never suspect would, would work together, you know? Right. And that's why I chose an alliance between China and India right now. Cause they, they've been enemies for a while. And I'm like, imagine if they actually combined forces, what yeah. a superpower that would become and what they could accomplish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, and, and I thought that was a really smart. Um, last year, I haven't found anywhere to publish it yet, but I re I did a whole bunch of research on science fiction's attempts at tackling the war on terror, right? Mm -hmm. Including a couple novels that are set in future caliphate. And it, uh, ISIS themselves make videos about envisioning their caliphate, like terrible, awful <laughs> videos, but they're science fiction in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. And so they envision their world. So it's, I think it's important that we as science fiction writers don't ignore that that's a part of the future sure. um, that we have to. So I was, again, that was another like, yes, um, <laughs> it's there. Um, uh, really well thought out future. In fact, um, I recently said to, to one of my friends off, uh, off, offline that I thought Machine Hood is one of the best 21st century world building that I've seen since maybe China Mountain Zhang. Um, and um, that one's a really, that I read China Mountain Zhang at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was really interesting when our economy was collapsing and people were fighting over toilet paper mm -hmm. uh, to read that book at that time. <laughs> and so were you writing this or were you doing the final proofs and edits at the beginning of the pandemic? Cause that's what interests me about because you said you didn't see it happening as fast with the pandemics, but you know, no, all, all of that, all of the, all of that content was written before the pandemic happened. The only thing I was doing post pandemic were like, uh, like, like proofreading copy edit type, like fine grain okay. details, not, not any of the world building. In fact, the pandemic stuff, I had in the very, very first iteration of world building research because I had seen people talk about the effects of climate change and one of the repercussions being new diseases and new pathogens and you know possibly more rapidly evolving pathogens and therefore pandemics were going to come. Like that's not my unique idea. There were scientists, right. there have been scientists saying that for you know several decades at this point. And so I figured I had to build that into the story again to try to encapsulate at least what we know today and extrapolating forward. Plus it played very nicely into all the biotech and genetic engineering economy that I wanted to build, you know, came as a natural offshoot of that, which also is happening a little bit faster than we're seeing, but um, yeah, it's kind of this push pull, right? Like as you're seeing with our actual current pandemic, uh, we threw money at uh, the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry, and you know we have vaccines in record time. We have new therapies being tested in record time, and we will, I think, see you know an outgrowth of new industries and technologies as a result of this that then expand into other spaces in society. Absolutely, yeah, totally. Well. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, I I was recently putting together a list of 
books that came out during the pandemic that accidentally um, hit on the issues. And I, I added machinehood to that because um, along with, you know, Paul Tremblay released Survivor Song weeks into, uh, into this. <laughs> and, you know, you, he didn't know when he wrote a pandemic book that it was going to be released in a pandemic. Or, um, Do you have Sarah Pinsker's book, Song for a New Day, on there? Uh, yep, yep. Okay. Um, that <laughs> one's interesting because there. it came out just before. But um, also Josh Mallerman's sequel to Bird Box, which um, it came in an interesting way because there's so much debating over whether people should take the blindfolds off or not became so much like the mask debate. Mm. And Josh didn't plan that. You know, he just, that's where the story went. He wrote it long before... Uh, coronavirus so it just accidentally happened and you know it's it's you know in Pinsker's book with the you know it's very interesting one too because you know we didn't see that coming and I think with machine hood a lot of also the our reliance on technology and just how much people are doing zoom and doing these mm -hmm. things like you know can lead to the lack of privacy and the things that you're talking about in this book but also like the supply chain problems that we're having now and seeing like how, um, you know, I could see in the future, they're, they're going to start saying, well, we have to address this with technology. We have to, we have to have robotic workforces. So, you know, if there's not enough people to drive the trucks, we need to make robotic trucks. So it is happening right now. Um, I just read a statistic that um, this year, uh, 2021 has had the most, those, like the record largest number of factory installations of robots worldwide. Right. Yep, uh, exactly. Because, yeah, because that's exactly what's happening. The labor force exited and robots don't get sick. So, voila. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, Divya, you wrote a freaking amazing science fiction novel. I, I, I love Thank this. You. And listen, I'm, I'm a retro sci-fi reader guy. Like, you know, I, I read all the new stuff when I can, when I think it's really, really good, but, but I'm a guy that grew up in 20th century science fiction and I have like a very soft spot in my heart for it. And I love when a new science fiction novel just speaks to me and, and, and sings to me, I want to read more new stuff that, that hits me the same way. So I really appreciate that. Where do you go from here? Because, um, uh hmm. you know this 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 one I, I don't want to put pressure on you but this was a really great debut and you so know. the next one is uh is a little bit of a reaction to this one because between machine hood and runtime um i have two very like solid hard science fiction near future stories under my belt and um if you read my short fiction it tends across subgenre a lot more. And so mm. for my next novel, I really wanted to write uh, Far Future. Right. Still very uh, philosophical. There's still a path from here to there in my head. But the, the next book I'm working on is set over a thousand years into the future and involves post-human civilization and its intersection with human civilization and there's still AIs and robots, but they've obviously progressed much further. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's sort of my exploration of that space in our genre and looking at things again, I always, I don't know, I like to look at things in ways 
that hopefully haven't been explored before. I'm still an idea person first. So it's still a very idea centric, heavy world building type of um, type of book with a fairly straightforward, but hopefully still interesting and engaging plot. Well, that's what I like about some, I like modern authors who you can tell they're a part of the modern world or the modern community, but they grew up reading the same stuff that, you know, that I like when I can tell they grew up reading the same stuff that I did, (laughs) you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with reading totally original stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the golden age, because there are some things that, that, that are great from that but i just have a soft spot in my heart when i can tell somebody uh grew up on the same stuff that, that i did so um and you can feel it in in the books and what i like about machinehood is that it it's a very modern science fiction novel but um but i i can feel i can feel the roots in it is hmm. what i'm saying so nice. um well i'm excited to uh read what you've got coming in the future um I, I, I really enjoyed this book. I, I think uh, the themes and the issues that it, that, that it will cause people to discuss are, are really important. Um, is there anything I missed with Machine Hood where you're, where you're thinking like, well, you know, there's, there's one other thing. <laughs> you know, that's out there. <laughs> no, I, th- I think we were pretty comprehensive. Yeah, um, there, okay. there's a lot to talk about in this book. And I hope that I really do hope that it sparks a lot of interesting you know, conversations over Zoom or over Barcons when those are start to happen more again, or, you know, wherever in people's living rooms. Um, that's really all I can ask for. That's That brings me the greatest joy as an author of this particular book. Right, right. And I'm going to put it out there a bit more um, before I post this episode, because I want to give people a chance if, you know, again, to, to read it, that I'm really going to hammer home to, 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 to my peeps that uh, this, 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 if they want to be a part of the discussion of my favorite books of the year at the end of the year, then, then they got to read Machine Hood. So I really appreciate your time. Um, thank you for bringing up these issues and bringing them to science fiction. You've done incredible work and um, I'm sure uh, I'll, I'll uh, want to talk with you about the next one when that comes out. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll see everybody again next episode. Um, thanks for joining us on Postcards from a Dying World. Bye.